We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Welcome to the show. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson today on Hamilton Today. If you were uh, launching a business, one of the things that you would almost certainly do is have merchandise out there, have hats or t-shirts or envelopes or coffee mugs or whatever. You want to brand your business so people see your name. And the reason is pretty simple because you're going to have competition. Sure. Let's say you're opening a hamburger place. There's lots of hamburger places to go to. So you want people to be aware of yours so they will purchase yours. However, there doesn't seem to be a great deal of need to put out branded merchandise if you own, if you have a monopoly. If you are the only thing in town that sells or does what you're doing and everybody knows the only place I can go is to you, it seems like it would be a waste of money to put into all this kind of stuff. Well, you would think. But our federal government is the only federal government that we have. Fisheries ministry, it's the only fisheries ministry we have. Certain public facilities and they're the only ones. And yet our federal government and its various branches have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on branded items over the last while. Stress balls and bags and coffee mugs and hats and... Whatever. I want to bring in Franco Terrazano. He is the Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. Joins me now. Franco, how are you today? Hey, I'm good. But hey, full disclosure, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to get through this segment without laughing the whole time. Well, you know, Invest in Canada spent $12,500 to buy candles. Uh, Farm Credit Canada spent $10,600 to purchase air fresheners. Um, the Windsor Detroit bridge spent $990. Now it's not enough, but to buy branded candy, why does a bridge need branded candy? Yeah. As if like, you don't know you're at a bridge when you're coming up to the bridge, you know what I mean? And, and you, and you mentioned invest in Canada shelling out 12,500 bucks on candles. What's worth it worse than that? The fact that destination Canada spent 13,300 bucks on candles. So listen to this folks. They're taking your money, they're branding the candles, and then they're literally lighting those candles on fire. So if they're, that's got to be like the perfect metaphor about how this government spends your money, hey? Just lighting it on fire. Well, uh, the, cr- the craziest one, too, I think, is uh, the charcuterie boards. Destination Canada also dropping like 9000 bucks on branded charcuterie boards. Yeah, well, I was going to say the craziest one for me is almost $1,500 on branded Rubik's Cubes. People still use <laughs> Rubik's Cubes? I thought last time I saw a Rubik's Cube was 1987. Um, like I, yeah, no kidding. I, I just, uh, I don't get this and I, maybe, maybe I shouldn't be shocked because we know that if there's one thing governments are great at doing, it's spending money. But what is the purpose? Why does a company, why does not a company, uh, we'll call them a company for lack of, but why does a government that has no competition need to brand stuff? Well, that's exactly it, right? It's not like there's another like gang in town that the federal government is worried that it needs to outcompete for our tax dollars. It's also not like the federal government uh, should be worried that we don't know that it exists. I mean, every day when you check your wallet and you don't have as much money as it used to have, you know that the tax man certainly exists in Ottawa. Uh, you, you mentioned the Department of Justice drops 3,300 smackers on stress balls. That stresses me out. Um, how about this? Export development climate. Spent 4100 bucks on climate change trivia cards. Okay, I don't know how that's helping exporters, but let's move on. Uh, $1,700 bucks spent on fancy pocket knives. $800 bucks on pizza cutters. Uh, the Business Development Bank of Canada, $3,700 $3, bucks on branded mints. 
Sounds like entitled mints. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, here's the on thing. And on and on. Franco, here's the thing. Like, I, I've questioned this before, and I've had people push back, and I get it. I, I've questioned before when we get in our mail the glossy magazines from the LCBO. I've often right. questioned, why do we need that? Because it's the only, I mean, now they have some wine in supermarkets, I understand, but basically it's the only show in town. If you want to get your whiskey or tequila, whatever, you go to the LCBO and people have said, well, you know, the nice glossy magazines, they make people maybe buy more. Okay. Even if that's a, I'll give it, I'll give you that. I'll say that maybe they've done the breakdown of the numbers and they say, if we put these magazines out there, people will go and spend more money and therefore they pay for themselves. But I don't have, I don't see where the same thing could be done for fisheries or for the justice department or whatever. Like there's, there's no, there's no choice of mine to go to these places then because I've got branded items and say, I'm going to spend more there. And, and folks, it's not like they're promoting, it's not like they're spending, um, when you, when you hear us talking about the government dropping thousands of dollars on branded merchandise or promotional materials, uh, it's not like they're spending this money like on advertising like on TV or on social media promoting a program, right? And, and maybe we can arm wrestle over, you know, whether that's good use of money or not or whatever. But it's not like they're promoting, uh, you know, this government program is now online. No, I mean, we're talking about them dropping a ton of money on polo shirts for a crown corporation that is in charge of bridges. <laughs> Here's another one, crazy one, folks, as if this isn't crazy enough. We, we confirmed that the Canadian Security Intelligence Service the CSIS, our spy agency, was also spending money on promotional merch. Now, they wouldn't tell us what it was because, I don't know, I guess spy stuff. Uh, but look, I'm no expert in espionage, but I sure hope we're not sending our spies out in the field with CSIS brand toques or shirts or jeans or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Maxwell smart shoe phones that are marked with CSIS on it. Yeah, I, I, as I say, like to me, it's just, it's in the grand scheme of things, I understand that we're talking about a country that has a multi, multi, multi-billion dollar budget and this is a small part of that. But Franco, the part of this that drives everyone, I think, berserk is that we're, most of us are, as I said in the intro before you came on, we're okay with our taxes going to things that are helpful, that, that we look at and we say, yeah, medicine is, you know, we need that and healthcare and roads. and the, We can see that it's the little nickel and dime stupid stuff that they do that you just look at and you go, do they think that it doesn't matter because it's only a few million dollars? It, it does matter. It, it matters money-wise and it matters uh, uh, perception-wise that they feel that this is an okay way to spend our money. I agree. And let me just add one more thing, though, okay? This isn't really a little bit of money. Um, we got only one department out of all the different departments, oh. agencies, and crown corporations, one department that tallied up the full cost of this, okay? And that was Fisheries and Oceans. And they spent more than $900,000 on promotional material. That's one department. Out oh. of the many, many departments, agencies, and crown corporations, they part. spent almost a million. I hadn't so got that they, part. So it's going to add up for sure. Oh, yeah. So it's not like we're talking about a couple tens of thousands of dollars, which would be too much. But we're talking about one department spending almost a million dollars on promotional material. You add up all the other different departments, agencies, and crown corporations, and that would be a huge tab. So it's not like it's just a little bit of waste, silly waste. Oh, the government, silly waste. I don't no, know. I mean, we're talking about a lot of money here. I, I guess I should go check. I want to go to the courthouse now in Hamilton and see if I can get a squeeze ball. I mean, a stress ball, just, you know, at least get something for my money. See if that's available or, you know, for witnesses who are in the, in the stand, maybe that's what they give them to. And it's marked, you know, for anyway. Uh, Franco Terrazano, the Canadian uh, director for the, federal director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thanks for doing this. 
Hey, thanks for having me on. Baby Herman, Paul Rubens was the actor's name, passed away today at the age of 70. I've been battling cancer for the last number of years. Uh, I had kept it quiet. Nobody apparently really knew about this. But uh, yeah, very surprisingly got this announcement today that uh, that Paul Rubens had passed away. But that song, I just, I, I would bet that most people listening, their exposure to that song and their their physiological reaction that they must do the Pee Wee Herman tequila dance when they hear it. They had to do that as soon as it started, or at least yell tequila when that part came. That was entirely because of Paul Rubens and Pee Wee Herman. It's a, it's a really, um, I mean, it's a small part of the story of what P- Paul Rubens and Pee Wee Herman were all about, because this was a guy who, and it's a weird, it's a weird um, what's the word I'm looking for? It, the fact that Pee Wee Herman as a character is one of the most familiar and iconic and known characters from the eighties is kind of bizarre. I mean, it really is like, uh, an adult child essentially who, how do you describe Pee Wee Herman as a, as a character? I, I mean, you know what I'm talking about. It just, it is, it is very odd that that would be one of the people, one of the characters we would know best and, and identify from the eighties. And yet we do because it just became everywhere. It be, it, for a while there, it was everywhere. So the fact that Paul Rubens, now this is where the story gets really, I, I think today where the story gets really interesting, because there's a second part of the Paul Rubens and Pee Wee Herman story that you're familiar with. Uh, he did over the years find himself in trouble. So you've got this guy who portrays this childlike adult who is, you know, as I say, very youthful. And then all of a sudden we read a story about him getting caught for lack of a more indelicate term, misbehaving in an indel- in an adult theater. And that kind of ruined his career for a while, but not really because he came back and he got a second chance and we started not very recently, but in more recent years, seeing him pop up here and there again. Bill Briou writes uh, Briou TV. He is a great TV and pop culture writer joins us now. Bill, how are you today? I'm fine, Scott. How are you doing? I am good. We were just talking about the sort of oddity that that a guy who played the character that Paul Rubens did, that Pee Wee Herman somehow becomes one of the most familiar characters from the 80s. I'm not exactly sure how you would have planned that one out, but it, it <laughs> is. He, he is, Pee Wee Herman is one of those, if you were in the 80s, you knew Pee Wee Herman. Absolutely 100%. Oh, yeah. I mean, he just embodied our, a lot of, for a lot of us, our childhoods and, uh, I worked for TV Guide in down in Los Angeles in 1985-86, and uh, that show, the Pee Wee's Playhouse, that's when it came on the air, and I never missed a minute of it. I just was mesmerized. It was just the animation and all the great actors who were on that. Phil Hartman as, you know, uh, Captain Carl, and um, it just it was just a tremendously entertaining show, and there was just something so appealing and. Uh, Childlike to uh, to Pee Wee himself, literally, yeah. So here was uh, just before you came on. Here was where we were going. One of the things about this, it's it's an interesting thing how certain celebrities who find themselves in trouble for sometimes very similar things get a second chance, and others don't seem to. Some are drummed out of Hollywood and drummed out of the public eye, and some seem to get another go at it. Pee Wee Herman, Paul Rubens, seem to get another 
crack. He was, you know, the, the, he was seemed to be forgiven. Let's put it that way. Uh, well, he, he earned that forgiveness, I think. My goodness. You know, it was sort of such a stupid way to, it's almost like if you're trying to torpedo your career, you would get caught exposing yourself in a, in a adult cinema in 1991. I mean, you know, odd. But um, it, Tim Burton directed the first Pee Wee movie, and it was really Burton who rebooted um, Ruben's career by putting him in Batman. You know, he was in the, one of the early Batman films that Tim Burton made, and uh, that was sort of the road back for um, for Ruben's at that point. He did late in his career try or did, I guess, redo Pee Wee, but it, was, it a, was it a character of its moment? Or was this something that you think could have had he not been sick? Because he, he disappeared from you, view and we didn't really know why. It turns out now that he, he had been ill. But is this something that could have caught on again and found the same life? Or was it a moment in time that just, you know, there'll still be people who will tune in, but it's not the same? I think the timing was key to it. Yeah, Scott. But I saw the reboot in L.A. He did these theater performances. And me and another critic from Toronto here... Um, we uh, Rob Salem. We went we went down near the Staples Center in L.A. and saw Pee Wee live. And it they recreated the set and they had wow. Yvonne. They had the music and the puppets. They had Cherry. They had the talking window. They had Terry <laughs> the pterodactyl. They had Conky. It was fantastic, and it was just so cool to see it live. But I do think um, you know that when they did the live version. It was 2010, as I said. So you have cell phones at this point. You've got, you know, the world had changed. And a lot of the stuff that he was goofing on in the mid-80s, it was really, he was making fun of our, for a lot of boomers, childhoods in the 50s and 60s, Captain Kangaroo and all the, the you know, and Canada Friendly Giant or whatever. But the, 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 the kids shows that you grew up with if you were of a certain age. And so... You're right. Like when it came out in the 80s, it was the perfect echo for now adult boomers to say to their new kids, well, you got to see this. This is just like what, what I grew up with. And, uh, you know, the fact that it had an 80s vibe, you had Cindy Lauper singing yeah. the, the theme yeah. song. It was just a convergence of talent. The music, Todd Rundgren and all these amazing uh, people who were, were in on the, the music of the series. Everything was I thought terrific. I would just love to know today for those people like you and maybe I and who grew up watching this or it was part of our youth or our childhood, whatever, when we're turning to our kids and trying to explain the picture they're seeing of Pee Wee Herman, why he mattered, it, it's a tough explanation because it just, it's not obvious. It's, it's not the most obvious picture to say, oh, I, yeah, absolutely. I would get why that guy was a big deal. No, it's, it's really based on uh, the weird world of kitty entertainment from the 60s you know around here you know in toronto hamilton you had uncle bobby you had uh kiddo the clown i remember going way back but there was <laughs> professor's hideaway or commander tom in buffalo uh -huh. or you know like a lot of these big al in kitchener every every market had one and it was often a guy who was the weatherman or a cameraman or somebody who was pulled in front of a camera and i think peewee was just inspired by soupy sales and uh, a lot of the children's entertainers uh, from the black and white era when he was growing up, uh, when he put Pee Wee together. It's a, it's, a, it's a sad story that he is gone, but it's, uh, people should go back maybe and take a look again. You can, I'm sure it's on YouTube or somewhere else. It's, uh, it's worth a look. Uh, Bill Breu, thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate you jumping on.
My pleasure, Scott. If people are really into it, there's an exhibit in downtown Toronto at this place, Myzeum, that is showcasing early Canadian children's city hosts. So check that out. There you go. Bill Breu, look him up on breu.tv. The federal government will be directing $45 million towards building and fixing 214 rental units within the city, four different projects. The city is going to pitch in $19.1 million to go to that. So we're talking about total about $64 million to make and fix these 214 rental units. We're going to hear from the mayor, from Andrea Horvath, in the five o'clock hour about this. But right now, I want to bring in Scott Aitchison. He's the Conservative Shadow Minister for Housing. He's the Member of Parliament for Perry Sound, Muskoka, who joins us now. Thanks for the time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Scott. This, um, anytime we're having an announcement about building housing, especially in a city like Hamilton, where we are so far behind right now, anytime that we have a housing announcement, it's good news. But if we're, we're going to have an announcement with the prime minister in town, every time we build 214 units, we're going to have an awful lot of announcements because we need apparently 35,000 or sorry, 53,000 of them by 2030. Well, and that's just that's just the city of Hamilton. You you look at the CMHC numbers. We need 5.8 million new units. That's 750,000 units a year. We've never built more than 280,000 a year in this country, and and it's only getting tougher. So you know, Justin Trudeau coming to town is all well and good, but it's not too dissimilar from what he did in 2017 when he promised Canadians a life changing. This is a quote: life changing, transformational national housing strategy. Well, we see the results. Housing prices have doubled. Rent has doubled. Interest rates are skyrocketing. People can't afford to live uh, and people can't afford to get into the market. There's not enough units. And so uh, he keeps promising that he's going to change the world and delivers very little. The, so if I'm doing math, and part of the reason I got into being on radio and writing in a newspaper is because they told me I had to do no math, but I'm going to try it anyway. <laughs> if I've taken $64 million between the $45 million from the federal government and the $19 million from the city, and I divide that by the 214 rental units, that works out to about $300,000 per unit which is an extraordinarily high, I think an extraordinarily high number, especially when you're talking about the CMHC saying we need five point something million. That's like one and a half trillion dollars if based on these numbers, whether the prime minister is in office or whether Pierre Polyev and your government or party is in office, how in the world are those numbers even reasonably sensible? Well, and this is the crux of the problem. Justin Trudeau and his liberal government don't understand the problem. There is no government ever now or in history that could spend their way out of this crisis. The private sector has to be incentivized to build what we need. And the biggest biggest gap in our housing spectrum, our housing continuum that Chad Collins was talking about, he's right, is purpose-built rentals. The private sector will build those if we if we encourage them to build them. And we also have to get cities on board. Hamilton's actually doing a pretty good job. Uh, Mayor Horvath and her council kind of get it. And they're, gonna, they're probably going to meet their targets or they're, they're darn close to it. So the prime minister goes to places where cities get it, but there's a lot of cities in this country that don't get it. And so Pierre Polyev will show real leadership. He will demand that if cities want support from the federal government for all the other programs they run, then they have to make sure that they are getting the units approved that need to be built, that we're working together, that we're incentivizing the private sector, that we're taking the back, taking government off the backs of development. People don't realize that, you know, of every housing unit built in this country, the average now, the average cost of government is 33%. 
Nobody makes more money on housing than government. We need to get out of the way of the private sector and make sure that they're building as much as they possibly can and more. But we have an awful lot of people, to, to your point. So if we were going to do that, if we're going to clear the way for private sector or for developers to come in, there's an awful lot of people who look at developers not as a help but as a hindrance because they are trying to make a profit and therefore this is not going to be affordable. These are going to be expensive. There may be houses built, there may be units built, but it's not going to be affordable. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, there's two, there's two issues here. On the entire housing spectrum, there's a need everywhere. And so there is absolutely a need for what CMHC would define as affordable rentals. There's a need for supportive and social housing. There's a need for rent geared to income housing. There's a need for shelter beds. But there's also a huge need for market rentals. And so my point is, and our point as a, as a party, and what Pierre's trying to point out, is that you know public dollars should be spent on those, those housing units that the private sector can't build and simply won't be able to because they have to turn a small profit, at least. There but, is, but we need we need to get the private sector building as quickly as humanly possible. We need to take and 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 all those government fees and costs go right to the bottom line. Developers don't eat the cost of development permits. Developers don't eat the cost of of, uh, of building permit fees. They don't eat the cost. They all go to the bottom line, and so it, it means your rent is that much higher. The cost to buy your home is that much higher. There is one other issue, and it's a very delicate one, because anytime this is raised, uh, you run the risk of someone saying, well, you're being xenophobic or whatever else, and it's immigration. And I don't think that there's too many people listening who are anti-immigration. I don't believe that most people don't want people coming into Canada, but we are talking about over a million people last year, a million people this year. Is that too many, considering we're, we're talking about housing, we don't have enough right now, is it too many? Are we, are we setting people up and other people who are here already up for failure? Well, there's no question that we need more Canadians. There's no question about that and, and completely support immigration. Justin Trudeau, of course, has broken the immigration system and done nothing to plan for the growing numbers of people coming to this country. We need more people. We need people with the skilled trades to help us build the houses that we need. Uh, and, and we need to be planning for these things before we just, you know, increase the number to a million. Uh, this is this is a classic situation with this government for you know for eight years they have they have failed to plan for the future they have failed to deliver the results that Canadians need need and you see the results housing is worse than ever the immigration numbers are higher than ever and we haven't planned for it we haven't planned not just for housing but think of all the other infrastructure that we need to to increase our population. It's important to grow our country. Absolutely. We need it for our economy. But you've got to plan ahead for these things. And the Liberal government is all about photo ops and talking points and no real results. That is Scott Aitchison. He is the Conservative Shadow Minister for Housing. He is the Member of Parliament for Parry Sound, Muskoka. Maybe next time in the summertime we can talk about cottaging up in your neck of the woods. But right now I appreciate you taking the time for this. You're always welcome up here, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Cannabis is uh, back in the news. We know that cannabis is legal in this country, has been for a number of years now. And back when the legalization happened, as you'll recall, cannabis shops popped up all over the place. If you, by the way, I have family in Waterloo. I don't know that there's any city in the world other than maybe the red light district in Amsterdam that has more cannabis stores than Waterloo. It is everywhere. They are everywhere. It's unbelievable how many stores there are. Anyway, turns out that things aren't going so well for the cannabis industry in this country, the legal, 
cannabis industry in this country. A number of companies have gone bankrupt. A number are in trouble. Seems that uh, maybe the government has set prices that are a little bit too high or the wholesale prices. And so now they are deciding that they are going to be lowering the wholesale prices, maybe to bring some people back in or to make it more enticing. Marvin Ryder is a professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster, joins us now. Marvin, how are you today? I'm just great. Thank you. Should we call you Snoop Rattling now? <laughs> yeah, you can, if you wish. Any of those guys. It's, uh, I, um, I'm probably the last guy to be talking about this as a non-user and probably I would guess that you're falling into the same category, but th- this, this seems, even though we're talking about cannabis, this seems like it is the absolute definition of the free market supply and demand and price and free market, all that kind of stuff. If you price something too high, people will find out other places to find something. Well, if you don't mind, I'll give a little background here. And I would actually say this is not a good example Mm. of supply and demand. Now, let me try to explain. Okay. Uh, The federal government, the federal government changed the rules to allow the legal sale of cannabis products in Canada, but left it up to every province to come up with its own distribution system, much like we do with alcohol. Some people have central alcohol stores, others let the private sector do it, what have you. Ontario uh, uh, had an interesting plan initially that was going to see cannabis sold through the LCBO outlets. The theory there being that the LCBO are really good at checking uh, credentials to make sure the right people are buying. We don't want underage people buying. But Doug Ford got elected. He said, no, 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 no. I want, I want to open this up so that everybody can have a store if they want to have a store. Initially, we did it through a lottery. We didn't pick people based on their skill as retailers or their plans as retailers. It was simply a lottery. The first 25 names that came out, you get a store. You got a store. Oh, uh, Then we did another 25. We did another 50. And now anyone who wants to have a store can pretty much have a store. What does all that mean? It means we have got far too many people competing in this industry. And the reason for this is it's not really the law of supply and demand. For instance, if you open a store in Ontario, you can't source your cannabis from anybody who makes it. You've got to buy it from the government-controlled store. Everyone buys from the same source. So I can't get any kind of a deal that I can pass on to consumers. But wait. What I sell it for is also controlled by the government. They won't let me have, for instance, a sale. This week only, buy one, get one free. Can't do that. They control that side of it as well. So because we had individual stores, we've controlled the supply and we control the selling price. People rushed in thinking that we're going to to make millions of dollars of this. It'd be a license to print money. Now, it is in a way, Scott. Um, On the wholesale side, this is the product the government sells to retail stores. Roughly $1.5 billion of cannabis is being sold by that company into into the market. At retail, we're doing about $2 billion. And yes, there's tax revenue, uh, now nearly $200 million a year in tax revenue being generated. The problem is that the retailers are squeezed. They can't get a better deal on the supply side. They can't do anything on on the pricing side. And because we have all of these individual stores, we don't have what we call economy of scale, where we can, say, share the cost of accounting services or or, uh, information technology services across a chain. So all of the retailers are hurting. I'm expecting to see more of a shakeout. We've already seen 
more stores close in the last year than we saw open. Against all of that backdrop, just today we've heard from the cannabis supplier, the Ontario Cannabis Store, that they are going to cut the wholesale price by about 6%. Why? Their argument for doing this, one of the arguments for government doing this was to control the market and get it out of the hands of the black market or the illegal operators. But it hasn't quite worked that way. In Ontario, 40% of cannabis being purchased is being purchased from the black market. And the argument seems to be that the black market prices it a little lower than they can get at a legal store. So if we cut the wholesale price, maybe, maybe the retail price will go down. But my gut feeling is that a number of the retailers who are struggling are going to keep a big chunk of that reduction for themselves mm. to improve their profit margins. Prices may come down a little, but I'm not sure it's going to make a significant dent in the black market. Well, and the reason it's a great point you raised, because uh, Statistics Canada, and I don't know when this was, but in the last little while, came out with an anonymous survey uh, from, I guess, the different users or say, I don't know where, but uh, that it was 40% higher to, uh, to buy from the stores on average than from the black market. It, so if you're, if that's the thing, if people are looking, saying it's way cheaper on the black market, dropping by 6%, if the margin is 40%, I don't know, I'm with you. I don't know how much that's going to make a difference. If the full 6% is passed on. Exactly, remember, exactly. So many of these retailers are hurting they're likely going to say, ah, finally, I get to improve my profit margins. So they may only pass a couple of percent along the way. Now, again, Scott, the, the argument here to be made for the legal source rather than the illegal source is that it's highly controlled. So you're, you know you're getting a good quality product. Uh, there are no other substances getting mixed into it. There are no noxious fertilizers being used. For lack of a better term, the, the Ontario product is very organic. It's all natural. You're not worried about those things. And, and I suppose the other thing is um, you, you're, you, you have a better sense of who the supplier is. This is not going to fund some gang activity mm. or some, some human trafficking activity. You know your source. But many people who do buy from a black market feel they know their source. They feel they're getting a good product. Why not save the money? Well, and we got to run, but here's the thing. I, and again, I'm not suggesting that Marvin Ryder is a regular purveyor of the cannabis stores, but let's say Marvin Ryder or someone like Marvin Ryder was, you're probably in the group of the age group and the demographic that would say, I'd prefer to get something safe and I'll pay a little more to make sure it's legal. If you're a 19 or 20 year old boy, uh, you might save the 50% and say, I'll take my chances because it's a whole lot less expensive. Yeah, that you're absolutely right. And so again, like all these things, this system is still new. It's only three years old. We're still learning the ins and outs of it, both from the government side and the retailer side. So do expect to see more turbulence. My prediction for the future is a, a, a reduction in the number of outlets, a lot more chains, and, and fewer individual stores. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster. Always love having you on. Thanks for the time today. Glad to be with you, Snoop. <laughs> there you go. I feel like I should... Uh... Big inhale before we go to the news. No, that that was entire. There is no, there are no bongs or joints in the studio. I promise you today. I promise. A really interesting piece in the conversation. If you don't know the conversation, theconversation.com. It's an online magazine. A lot of very interesting things get posted there. Anyway, there's this piece that's on there right now, co-written by my next two guests. I'll introduce them in just a second. The headline, the shift from owning to renting goods is ushering in a new era of consumerism. It seems as though for many people, don't know how many, we're going to find out hopefully, but for many people, 
the idea of owning something is no longer front of mind. If I can rent something, borrow something, temporarily have something, it's not really mine, but I can still use it. If I have access to it, that's a better option. Is it? Let's discuss that one. Uh, joining me now, Omar Affairs, who's a lecturer in the Ted Rogers School of Retail Management at Toronto Metropolitan University, and Mark Lee, who's a professor and associate dean of engagement and inclusion with the Ted Rogers School of Management at Toronto Metropolitan University. They are the co-authors of this piece. Uh, they both join me now. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. So, Mark, let's start with you. I mean, it's a really interesting idea because for the longest time, we have, I think, in North America, in the West in general, been seen as being a consumer-generated, a consumer-based economy, which was based on the idea of buying stuff. Yes. Uh, definitely, we are seeing a rise in access-based um, access-based consumption, which means that you know we no longer have to feel like we need to own something to enjoy the same type of experience. Uh, for example, something that if we think about 30, 40 years ago, think of fashion, we always had to think that we had to own the product to enjoy it. But with all of these new companies that are coming out to allow for rentals, now individuals are having access to these items. So especially for luxury goods, we have companies like um, Rent the Runway, where they're allowing individuals to um, borrow the product for a short amount of time that they can enjoy and return it back. So there are benefits such as this, uh, which is giving individuals who may not be able to afford the item in the first place, uh, an opportunity to use and access and enjoy. And okay. as a result, we're seeing it in all different industries where it's not just about through fashion, but there's other product rentals. And we've been seeing it through car and bike sharing services, but uh, there's growth in other areas such as even toys. So uh, it's it's there is a rise in this evolution of access-based consumption. All right. So Omar, Mark just caught me off guard because again, I, I'm everyone's familiar with rental cars or renting your home or renting tools or as he says, bikes, but even down to things like clothes, I is that something that is going to or has caught on the idea of something as personal? Because there's something about renting something that, you know, it's it's not really a personal thing. I sit in a car and then I hand the, I take the car back. But renting clothes is a lot more personal. Yes. Uh, so a few things here. Uh, so the fashion industry over the years, and one has to realize the conversation has shifted a little bit uh, over, let's say, the last decade. Um, actually, myself and uh, Dr. Mark, uh, we have a paper on this where the conversation we've noticed over the last 10 years shifted towards more sustainable models, right? It's the good that is no longer, well, hey, I'm going to buy the biggest or the most luxurious good and kind of put a period on that. Now, the conversation shifted to, well, how is it made and how can we extend the lifetime of that good from a sustainability perspective. So that conversation has been picking up over the last 10 decades or the last decades, uh, last 10 years. Now, what's happening uh, more and more is when we see this shift in consumer behavior as in aggregate, then it doesn't become frowned upon or to say, well, I have an item that was owned before, a personal item that I can rent and someone else can rent. The conversation has shifted and it doesn't have that stigma associated with it anymore. 
Uh, and just on that, to continue for a second, we've always seen secondhand stores. So people will go and buy clothes that are secondhand clothes, and that's never been, I don't think, or at least recently, it's not been frowned upon. But again, it's different. We're now taking even a further step and saying it's not just even that I'll own secondhand clothes or other items. I'm not, I mean, clothes is one, but th- we're going even a step beyond that and saying, I'm not going to own it at all. Yeah. And you bring up a, a good point. And the general idea here is, uh, well, listen, uh, with the impacts of COVID and the impact of the war on the other side of the world and with unbelievable innovation in how we conduct businesses, right? Now, we have tools that we never had in the past. We have tools that were able, through these tools, to funnel in the idea of sharing, hey, I have something and we're able now to communicate with one another very effectively or more effectively than ever before with the rise of tons of tools. And there is a discussion here with AI that is funneling in that power to say, well, from a personal standpoint, I don't mind given the economical hardships and given that I will have access to items that I otherwise wouldn't possibly access for many luxury items, many luxury items are not accessible in the regular life. But now, with the rise of unbelievable tools that facilitate this process, you say, well, maybe I can have a sense or a quasi-sense of the feeling of ownership. So I think that's also Mm. a big driver of that change or that push for change. Mark, so the idea that that, uh, Omar is just saying here is that this is something that there's been a a change in attitude almost, but has this also been pushed? If you've got people now who are struggling to find a home or pay for a home that they don't have the disposable income, is this this something that has been a mental change or is this something that's sort of been forced upon them and so as a result, they've adjusted and pivoted? I think where Omar is going with this is that it's all about increasing access for individuals. Um, for example, like I never play golf and I haven't um, ever, <laughs> but if I ever wanted to go and play golf, I don't want to go buy a thousand dollar golf club. Right. I can now, you know, borrow and rent and use it for one time to see whether I enjoy it. Now, if golf is something that I end up picking up, then sure, why not? Uh, that I can go and always buy. Ownership is always an option, but now what's happening in all of these industries is that it's giving access to individuals who may not be um, who may not be able to afford, but also who may just want to experience and enjoy without having that sense of ownership. And we can see this in all different industries. And as I mentioned, uh, the typical you know we see Airbnb and car sharing services have dominated the sharing economy early on, but we're starting to see it in industries such as even toys tools, fashion, golf clubs. And as a result, it's changing the conversation in a way that we're now thinking about how do we increase access of goods for individuals. And the result of this is that even creators and designers are adapting to this. The designers are now creating fashion where it's becoming more shareable among the community rather than saying, hey, here's one type of clothes for the individual that we're looking at. They're designing it within mind that it can be shareable. As I was listening, one of the things that I was wondering about is clearly there is a shift in um, how we're doing this and in the thinking around this, but one of the things with ownership, and maybe it's even bigger, one of the things with ownership often, especially when you talk about luxury goods, there was always a status symbol involved with ownership. 
Have we gotten rid of that? Is status no longer as important to people? Therefore, they don't need to own it. Well, I don't think it's gone. Uh, there is there is still an associated benefit. And listen, ownership brings with it a list of benefits. Part of it is being, um, well, that idea, well, I have higher status because I own the product or I associate myself with a particular brand. So that is still there. However, the shift, if we kind of look a little bit deeper there, uh, the shift here is, well, listen, I can, for a period of time, own something uh, or kind of rent something, but I can have access to something in other words and have that almost sense stimulated instead for that specific period of time. So it's, well, the benefits of ownerships, while they're still there, there are these new emerging benefits that one needs to look at deeply and say, well, listen, I can have a similar stimulated feeling of a sense of enhancement for a period of time while I own the product or the service uh, without actually owning the product. So it's almost a new paradigm uh, we're looking at here. Yeah, it, it almost sounds like, you know, many times we buy something expensive and have buyer's remorse as soon as we do it because it's costing us a lot of money. You can have the the thrill of the buy without having the remorse afterwards. Yes, absolutely. And this is a big part of that change. And listen, this or these phenomena are also associated with economic conditions. When the economic conditions are not ideal for many people, then people get very creative. You think of creative ways to satisfy deep needs. And part of these needs are the need to stand out, the need to be unique, the, the need to associate with certain brands. But how do you satisfy this when you don't have the financial means, let's say? Well, you find alternative ways. And in this case, it's the access way. Mm. Mark, the one of the things that I do wonder about with this, and I don't know how broadly this is ever going to spread, because I assume people are still going to be buying things for themselves, but our economy has for a long, long, long time been based on growth and sustainability by people buying stuff. It, is there a potential that this becomes something large enough that it has a negative effect on the economy because people don't buy as much? No, not necessarily. There's always going to be a place for ownership. And that's because even with access-based consumption, when we talk about fashion, there's going to be risks. There's uh, hygiene risks, there's psychological risks, the performance risks of the product, knowing that someone may have used it. Social risk, what if other people know that I don't actually own the product, especially when we're talking about luxury goods, because there is a certain status symbol that comes with owning luxury goods. But there's also elements of ownership that you can never be able to replace. Uh, I have a harmonica that I, I've had ever since I was young. You can develop a relationship with that harmonica. I was really into it. And um, when you're renting a product, you can never develop that sa same sense of relationship. The pride of ownership will never come. So if I were to lend it out to someone or rent it out to someone and they take a look at that harmonica, how would they say, I'm into you? Right? They will never be able to say that harmonica is mine or build a relationship in some way. So I think there's always going to be value in ownership. Uh, and it's just that in the changing economy and this uh, current status we're in right now, there's going to be an increase in access-based consumption, but there will always be a place for ownership. If you had told me ahead of time that you played the harmonica, we would have given you the platform to play it right here. 
what? I should have I should have gotten Nev right out and play it. I don't know if Omar has heard any playing of Mark's harmonica, but um, where, where does this go, Omar? I mean, we, we've talked about, as I say, cars, homes, tools, bikes, fashion now. Uh, I know like streaming is something that, you know, we used to buy DVDs or CDs. We now stream. Where does this go? How far can this go as far as things that we would rent as opposed to buying? Well, uh, well, listen, it's almost stepping in, in many, many areas of life. And, you know, you see it in so many examples. You brought up great examples. Uh, but I think on a deeper level, uh, not just products, now we're talking about more services, right? Uh, and that's, well, in Canada, it's um, mainly a service-based economy. Uh, so many services also um are kind of leaning towards that idea of access-based. And this calls for an important stop for businesses in terms of impact. Uh, You know, businesses need to almost take a pause and say, well, while this is there, how do we react? What does this really mean for businesses? Whether it's almost imagining or reimagining the the profit structure, how do we make money as well businesses? Well, what does the impact on society of such access move or the move towards access ship. So these are all questions that need to be uncovered in more detail. It's a fascinating, fascinating topic. I would encourage people to go to theconversation.com and look it up. The shift from owning to renting goods is ushering in a new era of consumerism. The authors, again, uh, Mark Lee and Omar Fares, uh, both from Toronto Metropolitan University. Really appreciate you taking some time to talk about this today. Thanks for, for spending some minutes with us. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We were talking about the announcement, but the Prime Minister was here in town today announcing that uh, the, prov- the, the, the federal government, pardon me, was going to be giving $45 million uh, to be matched, not matched, but uh, with the city throwing in another $19 million. Uh, 64 million in total to build 214, build and fix 214 rental units. This is, every little bit helps, I guess, when we're trying to catch up and find places for people to live in this city where things are very, very, very expensive. I want to bring in the mayor of the city of Hamilton, Andrea Horvath, who joins us now. Ms. Mayor, thank you for this. My pleasure, Scott, my pleasure. This, uh, look, uh, any announcement that is going to add uh, homes and uh, living units, I think has to be a good thing on any day. We'll, we'll get to the number in a second, but any anything is good news, right? Well, there's no doubt. And and I think when it's these kinds of partnerships uh, that uh, other orders of government are you know, pitching in to help us with the crisis we're in, uh, that's, that's always a good thing. Not only for, you know, the announcement today, but the relationships that uh, we'll keep strong for the announcements that'll come down the road. The one daunting thing that I will say when I heard this today, and I, I started doing some math, which is always dangerous, but I did it anyway today, is that when you combine the $45 million the feds are giving and the $19 million the city's putting in $64 million, uh, for 214 units, that's about $300,000 a unit. When you then take the 52,000 units, I think the province thinks Hamilton needs by 2031, you start getting into numbers like $15 billion that will be required. It, it becomes a pretty daunting number. Yeah, it, it really does. But um, one of the things I think to keep in mind is that this 
Uh, this particular announcement today is um, there's some private sector. Of course, we were at a private sector building purpose-built rentals, which you know uh, as well as everybody does that we need purpose-built rentals. Uh, some of the other um, dollars are for uh, affordable housing, uh, for uh, supportive housing, and uh, and so that's when the government step up. Uh, some of the units that were that I think you're referencing in terms of your math. Some of them, those will be driven by the private sector. Uh, our job as a city to, is to facilitate, you know, those houses being built, uh, but not all of it is going to come from, um, like not all of that stock is going to come from uh, from government. A hundred percent. And the reason I raised that, exactly your point, thank you for bringing that up, is there's no possible way that the city could afford $15 billion to build all this, even if we were going to have some provincial money. We are going to have to find ways, am I correct, to bring more private sector, more developers into this and make this easier for them to get stuff built? Oh, there's there's no doubt. And that uh, that work we are already starting as a city. Uh, we've been working on that uh, uh, to uh, to make sure that we're doing everything we can uh, to, um, you know, to get housing built. We also have a, a role to play uh, to try to encourage certain types of housing. As you know, not everybody can afford a, like a huge, massive uh, house. Uh, and lots of particularly young people, but uh, young families as well, are looking for that starter home. And so part of one of the things that we can do through our policy uh, processes is make it easier for people to get their foot in the market. Because the market's really tough right now. Uh, and so finding ways to, to, to build that miss, what we call missing middle housing, you know, the, uh, the townhouses, the duplexes and triplexes that, uh, that are a little bit more affordable when it comes to the scale of, uh, of affordability, those are our policy objectives as well. So there's a lot, there's a whole continuum, everything from the kind of housing that we were talking about today uh, that uh, includes, uh, you know, community partners in terms of uh, their, uh, their work at the uh, social uh, level, but also everything to private developers and, and uh, making sure that they're interested and incentivized to build the kind of housing that we need. When you talk to developers, and I'm sure you've heard this very same thing, I don't think I'm breaking any news to you, there has been criticism over the years about the sluggish process to get stuff done in Hamilton, to get things approved. Is that something that can be fixed or is being worked on to be quicker to make these things happen faster? Uh, well, it absolutely is uh, being worked on uh, for a couple of reasons. One is we've got some pretty tight deadlines that the province has imposed uh, with their desire to have more housing built. Uh, we also have a housing accelerator fund that the federal government has put in place, and this is for private development. This is not a not-for-profit or a, uh, an affordable housing, quote-unquote, affordable housing initiative. This is an accelerator fund that tries to do exactly that, accelerate the pace uh, at which uh, the housing can be built and at which infrastructure can be built to support that housing. Uh, so, and, and look, there are internal processes and I don't think anybody's um, denying that that have been problematic and that, uh, uh, that I'm committed as mayor uh, to clean up. And I know that our staff are working hard to do exactly that as well. So there are lots of pieces to the puzzle. Uh, what I don't want to do is in two years from now have the same kind of comments coming from the, development sector because yeah private developers are, are part of the solution here and we can't pretend that they're not they are and we need them and so let's let's uh, make sure that we're partnering in a way that's uh, the smartest for our city uh, and that gets us the housing uh, built in a in a timely fashion Again, I don't want to take anything away from today's announcement. 214 homes is 214 homes we didn't have before, which is a good good thing. 
the number that the province has put on, as I mentioned off the top, is about 52,000, 53,000 homes Hamilton needs by 2031. That's their numbers. I, I can't tell you exactly where that comes from. You would know better. But is that realistic? Is there any realistic way, even with the changes we're making and the acceleration we're making, to hit 50,000 new homes in the next eight years, seven years? Well, right now, as we speak, Scott, there are 37,000 units on the books uh, right now at the city. Uh, and so some of those units are going to be uh, fast tracks. They're in the they're in the hopper, if you will. The city has control over only some of that. Uh, and part of the problem that we are now facing is the the market situation. Just today, as I was talking to the proponents or the the builders, really of the building that we were at, they were talking about the increasing cost. And so interest rates are up, so the cost of borrowing is up, and so the projects become you know the numbers become less. Um, uh, less profitable, if you will, for the developers, and so they're looking at the you know some of the headwinds that the economy is is handing on to them in in terms of the cost of borrowing, for example. Uh, accessibility of trades is another big issue that came up today. Just having a kind of sidebar uh, with the company that um, that I was talking to uh, this afternoon. Uh, there, there's a lack of um, capacity in terms of our labor force uh, to provide the the you know the numbers of of bodies, if you will, the numbers of tradespeople necessary uh, to move these projects along at a quicker pace. And so there are some things that um, that definitely are barriers, but uh, saying, acknowledging that we have 37,000 units in the hopper, I think does speak to the fact that there are opportunities to build that housing. Controversial, of course, where that housing is going to be built. We all, we all know what those controversies are, uh, but we are also trying to facilitate things like... Uh, uh, granny flats. So as of right, extra units in, in existing buildings, existing homes, on existing lots uh, to, to try to increase the, um, the the capacity. So just so I understand, we got to run here, but just so I understand, those 37,000, does that mean they have been checked off and signed off and as soon as the developers can get to them, they are ready to be built? Uh, no, they're in various stages of that process. Some of them are are in that development process. Some of them have got their approvals, but the developers have decided not to move on those projects yet. Uh, so there's they're out of there's I can't peg exactly where okay. each and every project is. We don't have time for that, but um, but there are definitely those many projects. It's a matter of making sure that all of the uh, all of the pieces line up, both the city processes, but also the developers being prepared to actually move on those sites. That is the mayor of the city of Hamilton, Andrew Horvath. Thank you so much for taking time today. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. This morning, if you woke up early to watch the Canadian women's soccer team play in the Women's World Cup, um, you you might have done better to sleep in. They are, they have been for the better part of a decade, probably this country's most successful team. They have with Olympic bronze and Olympic gold and they've done exceptional things. Uh, this was not their day. This was not their tournament. They are out in the round robin phase and, uh, they got kind of obliterated today for nothing by Australia, plus a goal that was called back five, five nil. It was not pretty. Uh, a guy who knows soccer as much as anyone. He is a member of the Canadian soccer hall of fame, the Canadian sports hall of fame, the Hamilton sports hall of fame. He's, he's, like, he's an Olympian. He's a pro. Uh, his name is John McGrain. Joins us now. John, how are you? Uh, I've had better days. Uh, this, I, I don't like using this word too much, but I will in this case. This morning sucked. Well, it took me back to 
when Canada's men team lost to Honduras seven to one, uh, all they needed was a tie to progress to the World Cup, and today could easily have been eight nothing. Is this? I mean. The shock of this is that we might not be even talking about this if Canada's women's team had not been good. I mean, not making it, I guess there's no shame in not qualifying, but we expect so much more, I think, because they've done so well. Is this simply the end of a cycle and the end of an era because they've gotten older and the team has just aged and they haven't backfilled as well? What what happened? Well, don't forget they won a gold, what, less than 12 months ago? Yeah. Uh... So, I mean, you can point to certain people who probably have, you know, have, have run the race, and I would include Christine Sinclair, who's been an absolute stalwart for, for women's soccer over the last 20-odd years. I think it's time for Christine to move forward. But I would not blame her on today's performance. Uh, I got the distinct impression that people's brains and minds were somewhere else, not on qualifying not giving their best, and uh, and it was incredibly disappointing for all these young girls who were expecting more from these professionals. When you say their brains were somewhere else, are you talking business? Oh, absolutely. And, and explain the business for people who don't know. <clears throat> well, the business part is they've been fighting with the CSA about money uh, and about uh, about being treated equally with the men, which I fully agree with. Uh, but you know what? You've got to put those things in your back pocket when you get to a World Cup. And you're there not only representing the potential of you playing well and, and making money from professional teams, which is what the women's game is today. It, it, it can be quite lucrative. But you're also there with the, with the Maple Leaf on your chest. And the performance that they gave today was embarrassing. And I think they lost sight of the fact that they're playing for the country. There are, uh, our friend Bubba O'Neill from CHCH, he had a tweet this morning and I think it was him. Anyway, he said, um, you know, in a lot of countries, in a lot of soccer nations, a result like that, the coach would put in their resignation before they got to the dressing room almost. Should, should the coach, should the coaching staff be back or should there be entire overhauls in the whole operation of a team like this? Or as you say, it was just a year ago that they won gold medal. So, so you know what, maybe this was just a, a blip. It comes down to character. I mean, you don't have to be a great player to to win great prizes. It takes intestinal fortitude. It takes organization. It takes character. It takes heart. Uh, all the things that were missing today. And from the very first moment, I watched the game. I taped it and was looking forward to the game. I turned it off at halftime. Uh, there was just a bunch of athletes who, in my opinion, didn't try a leg, didn't care, and gave up before the first whistle. And for me, that is preparation. And I think the coach, uh, just like uh, uh, Stephen Hart did after the 7-1 debacle, handed in his resignation. I think I think there has to be a full overhaul of the coaching staff. I mean, the players are still good players. They play for some really, really good teams in Europe. Uh, So it's not that. These people were unprepared for this game. And it was evident to anyone, and you don't have to be a former pro to see that 
I'm sure you saw it too. One thing that I will point out, and let's bring it to the men's side for a second, which may be a weird way to go, but I, I'll tell you why I'm doing this. We are hosting, as part of the hosting, the next World Cup in Mexico, in the United States, and Canada. We're So Canada's men are going to be playing at home. And if they don't do well, and we don't know yet how it's going to go, but if things don't go as well as we expect, you know that one of the things that's going to be said is, well, there was a lot of pressure of playing at home. It's a big deal to play at home. Australia's women today were under that same pressure. They don't win this game. They're in big trouble. They performed as well under pressure as you possibly could have. They, they set the bar to me for what the Canadian men should be looking at when they're hosting in a few years. Well, uh, it took Australia three games to really to let the penny drop. And I think it was desperation where they went out and they gave everything. And uh, they gave everything the Canadian women gave nothing. And they couldn't handle the pressure, which is absolutely astounding to me because there's a lot of players on this Canadian team uh, who are playing for big teams, big, big teams. They're Olympic champions. I mean, should have been through the pressure. Mm. Uh, and, And they gave us nothing today. It was almost like, I don't care. And that's what really bothered me more than anything else. As far as the men is concerned, I mean, all this stuff about uh, they they want a bigger share of the pie and all this kind of stuff, what's being lost in this is that you're playing for your country. You're not playing for your local club or a professional club, and you're trying to get a bigger contract. Some of these guys, by the time that their careers are finished, will make over $100 million dollars. I mean, Alfonso Davies, Jonathan David, uh, I could go on and on and on. Some of them will make $50 million over their careers. Alfonso Davies will probably make $100 million. So why are we talking about, you know, another extra 25000 per game to mm. play for your country or whatever the heck it is? It's... You're supposed to be playing for the, the name on the front, not a name on the back. And that's what really upsets me. And I think it... It is now at a position uh, where, Scott, that uh, I don't know if this can be fixed on the men's side because it sure as hell, hell looks like it's going to take a lot to bring the women back on the on the Yeah, on that's, again. that's the, uh, we got to run. That's, that's the unfortunate part is that I really, I hope that this was a blip, that it was just a bad tournament and somehow it rebounds, but uh, we, we will see because that was, that was ugly today, unfortunately. John McGrain, I uh, always love having you on. Thanks for doing this, John. Okay, thanks for listening. Uh, yeah, that, it was a mess today, and for such for a team that has been so successful and so good, it was just so bizarre to see that. There, is, yeah, that was play, that was on the stadium announcement at, at the end of it. The stadium PA that was Canada's team. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on nine hundred CHML and online at nine hundred CHML uh, thanks for listening today. I'm Scott Radley. Uh, thank you to Tom for keeping everything going on the air, to Will for lining everything up. Thank you to you for listening. Really appreciate it. We will talk to you soon. Have a great night. Oh.